I was at a club before where a guy was a 12, another 12 handicap, shot a 68 one day. I mean, these things are... A 12? No, 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 no. A 12 handicap shot a 68? 68. 68. That's four under par at most golf courses by a guy whose handicap says he should be shooting in the mid-80s. Maybe that guy just had a good day. Maybe that guy just had a really, really, really good day. Maybe that guy just happened to play the best round of his life that day by a fairly wide margin. The odds of someone shooting better than their handicap by 8 strokes are roughly 1 in 1,138. And that guy beat his handicap by 16. But yeah, maybe that round was that one in however many thousand. Or maybe, and far more likely, he was just a sandbagger. We all know them. They're as much a part of the game as three putts and chunky chips. You ever play in some net best ball event and feel like you and your partner played well enough to have a chance at the hardware? And then you come into the clubhouse and you look at the scoreboard and you see that you're seven back because some team shot 16 under or something ridiculous? The odds are, if you've been playing golf long enough, you've been sandbagged, whether you realize it or not. Loosely defined as someone who carries a handicap higher than they should, the sandbagger is the most notorious person at the club, and only slightly less hated than the blatant cheater. In other words, the sandbagger is kind of a scum, a pure villain, but also a colorful and almost charming part of the game we love. And it's been that way, that paradox, for as long as anyone can remember. So what makes someone a sandbagger? How do they do it? Why do they do it? And why does it make the rest of us so freaking angry? But also, why do we love to talk about them so much? Why can't we seem to quit the sandbagger? I'm Daniel Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in the world of golf. This episode will cover a rather taboo topic in our game, sandbaggers. If you've ever wondered where the term sandbagging came from, you're not alone. I did too. Thankfully, Golf Digest Editor-in-Chief and my boss, Jerry Tardy, well, my boss's boss, he has the answer. Here's what he wrote. Sandbagging has nothing to do with stacking bags of sand on a riverbank to protect against flooding. It actually derives from a 19th century offensive tactic of hoodlums using a sock filled with sand to bludgeon a victim and steal his money. Now, to my knowledge, no one's getting bludgeoned with socks filled with sand on golf courses these days, or at least not in the literal sense. But you get the idea. The sandbagger ambushes his opponent and creates an unfair fight. And more often than not, the sandbagger ends up with money in his pocket that wasn't there before. Now, typically, this happens most often in handicapped competitions with cash or just glory on the line. Member-member tournaments or member guests or the net division of a club championship, but it can also be just a match between two people looking for some buzz from competition. It has all the seven deadly sins in it, highlighted, you know, by greed. There's thievery in it, dishonesty in it. It seems to just run so contrary to the, to the values that golf uh, alleges to, to purport. You know? That's Golf Digest senior writer Guy Yoakum. He's been with us for almost 40 years, and he's known as by far the best storyteller on our staff. In golf, he's seen it all. And he's also written it all. 
Back in 1995, Guy co-wrote a story called The Dirty Little Secrets of a Sandbagger. In that story, a confessed sandbagger tells all the tricks of the trade, how he does it, and how you can spot someone else doing it. It's basically an X's and O's breakdown of how to be the worst person in golf. Now, we'll get into Sandbagging 101 in just a bit, but before we do that, let's look at it from an ethics perspective. Because, as Guy just said, sandbagging runs contrary to the very values that golf prides itself on. You know these values. Honesty and integrity, sportsmanship, yada yada yada. But one of the key components of golf, and one of the things that makes it the greatest game in the world, is that any two players can not just play together, but compete against one another. I mean, I suppose I could play basketball with LeBron James, but that wouldn't be a particularly enjoyable experience for either one of us. Roger Federer and I couldn't rally against each other, but Tiger Woods and my eight handicap father could absolutely play a golf match against each other. By the way, Tiger, if you're listening, he'd love to. And at least in theory, my dad would have close to a 50% chance of winning that match. And now that's the genius of the handicap system. But at its core, it's an honor system. It relies on trust. You can't watch every shot of all your friends' rounds. So when they show up on the first tee and tell you they're an eight handicap, you have no choice but to believe them. And if they're BSing you, well, that's taking advantage of an honor system. And that's just a really scummy move. Not just in golf, but in life. That game, it's only as good as the people in it. And there will always be individuals, as you'll find in any walk of life, who are filled with chicanery, uh, don't mind, uh, sometimes they want to hurt other people. It's the, it's the ego that comes through it, the, the selfishness of it. And, uh, you know, unless you proceed honestly in golf, uh, Joe Dye, the old executive director of the USGA, he said that without honesty, you have no game at all. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's get to the how. How a sandbagger pulls it off. We'll start with what Guy wrote in that story. You really should read it, by the way. It's terrific. The first rule of sandbagging is that you can't be too obvious or you're going to get snuffed out immediately. So it has to be a few shots here or there. Nothing egregious. And it seems like there is indeed a sweet spot for this. There are handicap ranges where you want to be, it's easiest to pull off when you're in this zone. If you're a 25 and you play as a 17, you know, you can you can maybe get away that the, the trouble is you're not gonna get invited to many member guests when you're a 25. Not big competitive money games, okay? But, it, you know, the 15 who plays like a 10, he's very suspicious. The, the sweet spot to be is to be a seven who can play like a three, okay? Because every seven, honest seven handicapper, they can hit a golf ball. They, they, they probably have a pretty good swing. They're not, they're not going to make a lot of big numbers on their cart. They know how to move the ball around a golf course. If they're an th actual three, they can just play a little bad and, and seem like a seven and, and vice versa. So there will be threes who go into to tournaments as sixes and sevens all the time. I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you have at least a basic understanding of the handicap system. But a quick refresher can't hurt. So a player turns in every round they play, so long as they played by the rules, they don't play alone, and they played at least 7 holes to turn in a 9-hole score, or 14 holes to turn in an 18-hole score. 
and then every score receives a grade from the computer. It's a number based on a formula that adjusts for the difficulty of the course and the tees you just played. Then the computer will take the eight best of your last 20 scores, average them, and voila, there's your handicap index. And that index is then applied to a specific golf course and a specific set of tees, and that's how your course handicap for the day is determined. And that number dictates how many shots you'll be getting in any net competition. So if you really should be getting six shots, but you're getting nine, then the scales are heavily tipped in your favor. Anyways, as an aside, tour pros can be sandbaggers too, the best players in the world, because so often these guys don't keep updated handicaps. And even if they turn in all their scores from the PGA Tour, they'd be entered as playing from the championship tees. Courses don't get re-rated for tour events to account for the higher rough, the firmer greens, the tougher pins. And when the guys play in events, they play straight up. But Golf Digest has looked into this topic quite a bit actually, and the average tour pro is somewhere around a plus 7 index. At his peak in 2008, Tiger was close to a plus 10. And again, both those don't account for the tour conditions, so those handicaps would be even lower. But you know, there are tour pros who are sandbaggers. Bill Mickelson will sandbag your ass. You know, Sam Snead was was notorious for that. And and now how does how would a Phil Mickelson sandbag? If you want to go play play Phil, if you saw him, I've seen him do it. He did try to on me. If he want, he'll say I'll play you for twenty thousand. That is twenty thousand. Whatever makes you uncomfortable, <laughs> you know whatever. But he'll, he'll say okay. So what's your anti God say five? He'd say well I'll, I'm zero. So like that. And there's always that thing where a tour pro will present. That happens a lot. They'll present themselves as a zero. And if you're, you know, if you're not reasonably knowledgeable, you can kind of fall for that. Now, of course, the vast majority of golfers never play with a tour pro. It's much more common to come across one of those threes who says he's a seven. So how does someone do that? Again, this is where the honor system, or the lack of honor system, comes in because everyone's handicap is arrived at by the scores they post after a round. And for some golfers, where they play is just as important as how they play. Allow me to opine here for just a second. The new handicap system still doesn't do enough to account for the difference between a really hard course and a not so hard course. I can vouch for this personally. Wingfoot, big bad wingfoot, where only one guy in a field of 144 of the best players in the world broke par at the US Open. It's rated 74.5 from the member tees. The course I grew up playing on from the member tees is rated 72.8. Now, there is just no chance in hell that winged foot is less than two shots harder than my old course. It's closer to six. So start there. Give me the five handicap out of winged foot over the five handicap from my childhood course 10 times out of 10. And then you want to pair the hard courses with resort courses. It's a classic high-low strategy. Here's what our confessed sandbagger told Guy. Sandbaggers love resort courses. There's a resort course in Dallas that has maybe 350 names in the handicap computer. It reads like a most wanted list of handicap hustlers. Why? Lack of internal policing. Resort courses are a transient, factory environment where hardly anybody knows one another. There are few circles of friends to police each other, and the handicap chairman and head pro are helpless because they don't know anybody either. At a lot of resort courses, shady characters stand in line to load the most preposterous scores you can imagine into the computer. My handicap, basically, was anything I wanted it to be. The sandbagger is also a master manipulator of the computer, 
or in more recent years, the Gin app. Back in the day, the only way you could turn in a score was at a kiosk at the golf course. Now, it seems like everyone does it on the Gin app or the Gin website. Whatever the method, the sandbagger is keenly aware of what goes in the system and what goes out. And just as crucially, what doesn't go in the system. He'll play alone, which by USGA rules means you're not allowed to turn in a score. He'll play six holes or 13 holes, so he doesn't have to post a nine hole or an 18 hole score. And the times when he does shoot a good 18 hole score, often against his will, he'll do whatever he can to avoid putting it into the computer. There might be an excuse. I was given too many putts, it was a best ball format, yada, yada, yada. Or he might go old school and just pretend like he never got to it. He'll head to the grill room after, talk a lot, have a few drinks, and steer the conversation away from golf. As our confessed sandbagger told Guy, I found that my pals often had forgot about the round entirely, and I could slip out the back door with the score in my pocket. And the sandbagger doesn't just control what goes in the computer. He knows what comes out. He'll have no problem turning in a solid 78 if he knows it's knocking out an even more solid 76. And then there's the dirty core of sandbagging tanking golf shots. Sandbaggers love to do this, especially at the end of the round when they've already closed the match out. They'll hit one out of bounds on 16, three putt from 12 feet on 17, go for the miracle shot through the trees on 18, and make triple when a punch out would lead to a bogey at the worst. Back at my club, we call this handicap management. Sandbaggers, they're, they're particularly shameless. I mean, I knew a guy one time who you know, he was just, he was good. I mean, he's like a four and a, and a five or a five. He was right in that zone and he had it going, man. I mean, this guy was like uh, three under, you know, with like four holes left. And he went in the tank very, very obviously he just started hitting such bad shots. And I, I said, Hey, you know, Mike, have you shot in the sixties out here before you? And he, he goes, he goes, no, I never have. And I go, well, well, that's a big deal to shoot in the 60s. I mean, you realize you're three under, you, you par in, you're, you're going to shoot 69. And he said, no way. He go, he, I go, what do you mean? He said, I'm not putting a 69 in the computer. <laughs> you know what that'll do to my handicap? That speaks to a part of the sandbagger psyche that so many of us just can't relate to. For them, golf isn't about honest improvement, about wanting to get better, about that incredible feeling when you shoot your best score ever, about getting your handicap lower than it's ever been. For so many golfers, playing well is so much more important than winning whatever match they're in. And this is so very true for myself. Because if I'm being completely honest, I love telling people that I'm a scratch golfer. It's a badge of honor. I'm immediately cooler, a more desirable playing partner in someone else's head. It's just different from saying you're a two or a three handicap. Now, could I fudge a few rounds here or there, grind a bit less over the six footers, and get my handicap up? And when doing that give me a better chance in matches and club tournaments? For sure. But again, I'm going to fight like hell to keep my handicap down because I like being a scratch golfer. For some people, this desire to have a low handicap goes to the extreme. And this is when you get into the territory of vanity handicappers. They're the inverse of the sandbagger. If a sandbagger says he's a 6 but is actually a 3, a guy with a vanity handicap says he's a 6 but is actually a 10. It's a fascinating insight into the differing mentalities some golfers have. If the sandbagger is a sicko, this person is kind of pathetic and an absolute persona non grata in member guests. They're almost worse to be partnered with. I mean, because the, they will alone, they will sink you, a, a vanity handicap guy. And they're, 
they're almost as ridiculous by by thing you know no one likes anybody to purport to be something that they're not the lurking variable here of course is money if you're playing for a lot of it and you keep a vanity handicap then you're either extremely rich or a narcissist so if a guy is a sandbagger odds are he's either one of those people that takes sick pleasure in duping people or he views golf as a means of making money you know you mentioned money i think that that's that sometimes it's just as simple as that. You know, it's like they asked the old uh, bank robber, Willie Sutton, you know, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. So, so why do these people sandbag? Well, it's just simple. It's uh, sometimes they just want to win the cash. They want to win the merchandise prize. Uh, they want to be patted on the back. They want you, to, they want to hear the, the words nice playing. Um, there's, some of that's glory and and uh, and cash. You know that that that's what drives them. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be right is Golf Digest weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. So how do you spot one of these guys? Are there any telltale signs of a sandbagger? Sure there are. It's sort of like, uh, oh, I don't know, what was the Supreme Court justice, uh, you know, where they, they said, how, how do you recognize pornography? And he says, well, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Well, we know sandbagging when we see it. My buddy in Texas pointed this out. I'd always noticed this, that, you know, you look in a guy's bag, and this guy will say he's like a 15 and you look in there and you see he's got kind of a beat up old driver. You know, his irons are nothing special. But he goes, then you look over to the wedges, okay? <laughs> he's gonna be carrying two or three wedges. The grips on all the clubs are gonna be fresh, okay? The shaft flexes, when you just glance at it, you'll see that they're probably all the same, <laughs> roughly the same. And it just shows, that that's just like one tell uh, and Good golly, there's a lot of them. Uh, you can see it in just the character of a guy's ball flight. You can watch the way they tee, tee their ball, just the way they step into it. It's true. Someone once told me, and I can't remember who, which is a shame because it's really an awesome little saying, that he could tell a guy's handicap within two or three shots simply by seeing how they carry their golf bag from their trunk of their car to the clubhouse. There are tells. A scratch golfer tends to dress a certain way. He carries himself with confidence because he's comfortable on the grounds of a golf club. You can see their head covers and the type of irons they have. Now, are there exceptions to this rule? Of course. When I was 16, I lost in the semis of the club championship to a 72-year-old man with a six hybrid in his bag. He did not look like a scratch golfer, but he shot 71 that day and beat me with a 30-footer for birdie on 17. But that's the exception, not the rule. Look at a guy's mannerisms. Does he walk around the hole when he's reading putts? Does he have a little swaggy routine when he hits a perfect drive and picks up the tee before the ball reaches its apex? Does he use his wedge to knock the sand off his shoes after playing a bunker shot like the pros do? 
If the answer is yes to any of these, beware. When it comes to golf handicaps, you can more or less judge a book by its cover. In golf, you're innocent until proven guilty. Unless there is video evidence of a rules infraction, the player's word is taken as gospel. Again, a game of honor. So it wouldn't feel right to not give a voice to an accused sandbagger. On our staff, that's Mike Johnson, our senior equipment editor. By all accounts, Mike's a really good player. Back in his day, he was as low as a plus two handicap, and he even played in the 1982 US Amateur at the Country Club. Now, he's an 8.3 index, and my coworkers aren't buying it. At least not completely. So I brought on Golf Digest senior writer Alex Myers, who's been known to throw around the S-word like candy, to have a face-to-face conversation, well, a virtual face-to-face conversation, with the accused. And as is often the case, Alex began with a story. Quick story, Dan, before your time, uh, just to show this guy's prowess, the, the Sites Cup came down to the final hole and Mike needed to chip in for birdie just to, uh, I think, to win his match, whatever, it was to tie the whole thing and we would retain the cup. I whipped out my phone and filmed it and he chipped in for birdie. I mean, this guy was like Tiger Woods. He could just conjure magic at any time. That's how good. So, so again, and at that point I was like, man, this is, I, I, this is one of my coworkers. How good of a golfer is he played in the U.S. Amateur? Uh, it, pretty amazing. Myers. Is Mike the S word? <laughs> wow, you're putting me on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot. Say, I will say this. Whatever handicap he is, he is the best, one of the best nine or whatever he is in the world. And I'd want him to be my partner any day of the week. Yeah, it's, uh, well, for starters, Alex, it's called OLD, old. I mean, I'm, I'm a decade older and in my late 50s now. And, uh, you know, as, they said in uh, the movie Major League, I'm throwing every bit of junk I got at him, Skipper. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to work it as hard as I can. You know, I, I get where you're coming from, right? I, I think it point, what you're bringing up points to the fact of, are you a true sandbagger or, or are you a perceived sandbagger? And, you know, I, I get that the perception sometimes takes on the tone of reality and, as it relates to myself, I totally get it. You know, I was a plus two in my youth and now I'm wow. sporting an 8.3 index. So given the course, I'm an eight or a nine. Right. But, you know, I, I think I am an eight or a nine, but at moments I know more shots than your typical eight. I know course management better than a typical eight. I, I play better under pressure than your typical eight because I've had that experience of tournament golf and playing right. at a higher level. And yeah, I tend to grind more in competition than when I'm just out with my buddies. That gene kicks in again. That's defense number one. I try harder in competition. I focus more on where I want to miss, what angles I can attack from, and I read my putts with more attention. But defense number two is way more fun because it can actually put the accuser on their heels. Simply put, most golfers, when they're playing non-competition rounds, they just don't follow the rules of golf. And we're not just talking about picking up after you've made your max allowed score on a hole, because that's actually following the handicap rules. We're talking about just plain old rule breaking. A few years ago, we published a piece called The Reasonable Man's Rules of Golf. 
It included 14 things that you'll see at every golf course, everywhere, every day. They range from playing out of bounds as a lateral hazard, to not putting out all of your two and three footers, to moving your ball out of a footprint in the bunker or a divot in the fairway, to dropping on the other side of a forced carry if you lost your first ball, to taking a mulligan, you get the picture. And those things might be reasonable, but they're also, of course, illegal. An eight handicap who takes a mulligan off the first tee every round, who picks up all of his three footers and moves his balls out of divots, he's not the same level as an eight handicap who does none of those things. So who's the morally deceitful one here? The alleged sandbagger? Or the guy who fudges the rules of golf every single time he plays? That piece, by the way, it was written by Mr. Anti-Sandbagger himself, Alex Myers. So I asked him about it. But you're right, Dan. On some level, um, when you do kind of take it easy with the rules, and obviously the USGA has loosened up the rules a little bit the past few years, but I agree with my friends we, we do move it out of a, a divot in the middle of the fairway. I mean, we, you know, we're not going to make someone play from, from that, or um, we do usually kind of play out of bounds as lateral. So you're right, that kind of stuff. And of course we, we give gimmies. So that kind of stuff does add up. If you don't put out everything, if you don't play everything OB, that, that even if it's just one or two strokes around, obviously that adds up. That makes a big difference with your handicap. Alex is really, really sensitive to sandbaggers. He had such a scarring experience a few years ago when he and a friend were fleeced in a member-member tournament that he won't even enter a tournament like that anymore. But even he has been accused of sandbagging in the most hilarious way possible. One time I shot a good round and I was substitute teaching. This is just out of college. Substitute teaching at a school where he was a teacher. He came in in the middle of class with a bag of sand and plopped it on the desk in front of all the kids. Didn't say anything. Just gave a big smile. The kids probably had no idea, no idea what he was talking about. No idea whatsoever. It was unbelievable. The kids were like, what, what was, what was he doing here? What was going on? And I, and I had to kind of try to explain it to him, but it was the funniest thing ever. One more story from Alex because, well, it's just that good. You got to hear it. At a club championship. Now, again, he was a a newish golfer, but he was a 23 handicap. You're not going to believe this, Dan. 23 handicap. And again, this is the same golf course where this, the 10 or 12 shot a 68. It's an easy course, but whatever. A 23 handicap shot and 80. That is a net 57. Uh, it was so egregious. It's the greatest round in the history of golf. Greatest round in the history of golf. Now, it was in the qualifying, luckily. It wasn't in the actual tournament. So people, but people were so mad that the head pro had to call um, one of my other friends to come down to the course and testify. A, that this guy was that level of golfer like they had like a hearing so he had and, to come and say no this guy actually sucks like he yeah, actually yeah. this guy sucks exactly and, <laughs> and he did and he said I, I swear he did and you know it was one of those rounds too where uh there's a hole where there's a fence behind the green on one hole he bladed the shot it hit the fence bounced back to 10 feet made the putt for bird you know crazy things happen but it was wild that he shot an 80 they ended up doing his bumping him i think it was the c flight they made him play in like the a flight and he he got dusted in the first round and the best part of that story the 23 handicap who shot 80 he's the same guy who put the bag of sand on substitute teacher alex's desk and that's the thing about sandbagging everyone gets accused of it at some point or another and there's a reason for that back to mike johnson i've also seen many times people be called a sandbagger when they're merely 
a relatively new player or someone who's just starting to play a lot who's just getting better. And if you're a good athlete, that that change can come really fast. Right, and I guess your, your handicap can't drop unless you play better than your handicap, right? So some everyone at some point is, I guess, a sandbagger. That's exactly right. Anyone who improves is a sandbagger. It's worth noting that sandbaggers face greater challenges than ever before. They're not quite an endangered species, but they're not flourishing either. It's a really bad time to be a sandbagger. First of all, I think it's less, a little less common. It's less rampant than it used to be as a problem. Um, there's too much transparency. It's harder to get away with. Now there's even technology designed specifically to combat the sandbagger problem. Cap Patrol is a computer program that debuted at the PGA show this past winter. It's developed by George Thurner, a sports statistician, who worked with the USGA to identify five areas that sandbaggers use to manipulate their data. The program will analyze everything that comes into the computer and then make suggestions on how to adjust a person's handicap. This is serious business. I just don't think that golfers, now more than ever, we just don't seem to suffer fools gladly. You know, there's, there's less tolerance of it. Um, even at the AT&T, whenever somebody wins, they're, you know, invariably, the, the amateurs always like, you know, as a sandbagger, it's the first thing you look uh, to see. And you see the reaction of them. They, you know, there aren't that many sandbaggers in that field out there. He's talking about the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, the PGA Tour event where pros play with celebrities or athletes or business executives or anyone with the cash and connections to get into the field. Kevin Streelman and NFL wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald have won the Pro-Am portion two out of the last three years. Fitzgerald was a 12 the first year and an eight the second time he won. Sandbagger? Maybe. But doesn't he just sound like the kind of person Mike was describing? A really good athlete improving really quickly? Anyways, back to the reason sandbaggery is less common these days. There's not as much money bet in member gas. I think gambling, the, the fact that it's casino gambling, online sports gambling, we now have other places to gamble. That's another thing. A sandbagger just like to gamble. Some people just like that. And, and gamblers, people who gamble, they like to win. And I think there's less of an incentive that way. Um, it just doesn't seem, you don't have these, everybody's vetted, you know, really thoroughly now, certainly in tournaments, but the handicap system itself, I mean, back in the day, you would, you could punch anything into the computer and it would fly. It was easier to carry handicaps at different clubs. They weren't, there would be two different handicaps. Now you have one, you know, gin number. That's, that's it. Uh, so it's harder to get away with. It's, it's less common. But is that a good thing? Do we want the sandbagger to go extinct? The answer is no. Maybe you don't like playing against them, but they're a key character in the member guest drama. You love gossiping about them in the grill room, making noise when the guy who always shoots net 68 comes in with a net 68 yet again. Because any good story needs a villain. And they're it. Winning a tournament wouldn't be anywhere near as gratifying if you didn't feel like you were overcoming some adversity, that you were able to play the good guy, to prevent the sandbagger from taking home the hardware. Guy Yoakum knows this. It's a great topic of gossip. You know, when you sit around grill rooms, uh, you talk to other golfers. These names, I mean, you know, we're, we're just, it's like a 
sewing circle of gossip. We love to talk about this thing and talk about these outrageous sandbagging stories and all that. I mean, they're, they're a lot of fun. They're, they're a colorful part of golf. There's no doubt about that. But that's, that's another thing is like, do we, do we really want to eliminate them completely? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I, I want them eliminated from what I'm playing in, you know, especially what I'm playing with. But no, 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 we, we do want them somewhere. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for this episode is called Happy Hour, and it's by Loco Lobo. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. It'd be a big help. Thanks a lot.